Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. What else is happening around the Proceedings editorial team? Uh, well, we started working on the December issue of the magazine, so November is uh, in the mail, should be popping into our readers' uh, mailboxes uh, early next week. Our Marine Corps theme issue, we got a good piece from the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, writing, I, I don't want to scoop, a, scoop him too much, but it's about how the Marine Corps will pitch into the anti-submarine warfare fight in the future. So that's kind of an interesting concept, right? <laughs> Marines with submarines. That's what Tom Ricks, <laughs> Marines with that's what he used to say exactly. about the V-22. He's like, can you imagine Marines with submarines? <laughs> <laughs> Well, not not riding submarines, but helping to fight submarines. Yes, fight, fight no, the adversary no submarines. So yes. anyway, it, it's a that's a good piece. Uh, I know um, our CEO Pete Daly will be interviewing a, um, Admiral uh, Kilby, the N eight, and um, uh, Lieutenant General Eric Smith, who is the director of Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Uh, that's coming up on uh, Tuesday. Um, in, in the next Maritime Security Dialogue series. So that one, uh, watch for that one. It should be an interesting conversation, uh, really focused on Navy-Marine Corps integration. So those are the two guys uh, within the Navy staff and the Marine Corps staff who are definitely making integration between you know Navy-Marine Corps work um, and figuring out things like how can the Marine Corps be part of the ASW fight, right? And um, uh, we know that the... Uh, December, November, December issue of Naval History Magazine has hit people's uh, mailboxes as well. And we'll get that posted uh, later this week for a one November deadline. Okay. So that's kind of what's happened with our team. All right, let's go ahead and introduce our guests today. The uh, conversation is about a new book by the Naval Institute Press. It is called The Craft of Wargaming, a detailed planning guide for defense planners and analysts. It's just out this fall. And the authors are a couple of Army guys and a civilian. So we've got Colonel Jeff Applegate, U.S. Army, retired. Colonel Robert Burks, U.S. Army, retired. And Fred Cameron, uh, two of them joining us from uh, out at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, Jeff and uh, Rob are instructors there. And Fred Cameron is joining us uh, from Vancouver, Canada. So, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. It's great yeah, to be here. Uh, I'll start off with the first one for uh, Jeff. Just uh, give us a you know, 90,000 foot viewpoint. What is wargaming? Well, wargaming is basically the study of, uh, of warfare through human interaction. So we differentiate between uh, what's, what's ubiquitous today in DOD, which is doing studies with models and sims and cranking out lots of quantitative data. We're actually looking uh, to use wargames to understand the human dimension, human decision-making. So that's really the key distinction, I think, between wargaming and all those other kinds of studies that uh, that use our computer simulations. And you and uh, Rob, you, you teach wargaming at uh, the Naval Postgraduate School? Absolutely. So I love a couple of Army guys teaching at NPS. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I, uh, I got my Ph.D. at NPS in operations research back in 1997. I was fortunate enough to come back a few years later and direct a small army uh, research element there called the TRADOC Analysis Center at Monterey and uh, kept in close contact with the OR department. And when it came time for me to retire, I told them I'd love to come back and, to Monterey and teach. 
And fortunately, they had a slot available, and it all all really worked out. I retired uh, from Fort Leavenworth and started work in Monterey the like the next day, basically. How about for you, Rob? Yeah, as a um, uh, Army guy, I'm a like, like Jeff. I'm a operations research analyst who had a long background in wargaming. And my last duty assignment, I was lucky enough to be posted to the Naval Postgraduate School as the associate dean, and I got to serve as an assistant professor in the operations research department. So it uh, just fell into place in terms of being able to take my operations research skills and begin using them at MPS and helping Jeff with the wargaming. And um, Fred, how did you get involved with these two American Army guys who are teaching at NPS? Well, um Jeff and I uh, first met in, I think it was September 2003, at a, at a conference in, uh, in the UK, and we hit it off. Uh, at the time, I was uh, working for the Canadian Department of National Defense and, and Operations Research, and uh, we stayed in touch. Uh, Jeff got out of the Army, went to MPS. Uh, he knew of my background in wargaming in Canada, where we tended to focus, or at least in my studies, tended to focus more on what we call seminar wargaming. Uh, which is really bringing in multiple players with uh, different perspectives and trying to get them to interact and find out what uh, critical issues there are. So he invited me down as a guest speaker a couple of times. Then there was an opportunity to uh, to do uh, uh, essentially a, a professional development course at the Canadian Forces Aerospace Warfare Centre uh, in Ontario. Um, so he and I taught that course together, a one-week course, and we hit it off as a, as a team. Uh, um, I'd gotten to know uh, Rob through Jeff, and um, and then we've done probably, I don't know, more than a dozen courses since then, either two of us or three of us doing courses various places in the States and, and around the world. So you guys are all three very heavy in operations research. Is that um, a natural home for wargaming within the, the military? Well, I'll, I'll take uh, that one. I'd, I'd say – oh, go ahead, Fred. No, I was just – I was going to say uh, it depends if, you know, wargaming can be used for many different purposes. Anybody who's played, for example, uh, command post exercise uh, has been exposed to wargaming in a way. Um, so wargaming can fall into essentially uh, three domains. One is uh, training, like a command post exercise. One can be um, more educational, as you would find at, say, the Naval War College or something like that. And uh, and then the third component is really an analysis and and I think that's where our strong point is, uh, the three of us. We've all worked in operational research where we're trying to use wargaming to assist a sponsor, usually a, uh, a senior senior level uh, military commander, uh, help them with their decisions by doing analytical wargaming. So this question for um, for Jeff, uh, as I was reading the book over the weekend, you know, you explain up front, as, uh, as Fred just said, you know, there's sort of educational or training war games, there's experiential war games, there's analytical war games, and you guys have focused mainly on uh, analytical war games. To what extent is your book a uh, how-to book for war gamers? I think it's, it's really probably the how-to book that's out there because we really focused on the process and our goal was to be able to create a book that a, a harried staff officer on a COCOM staff could pick up when they were assigned to do war games and they had no clue what they were doing and they could pick this up and, uh, and read through it as you've been reading and kind of figure out what the steps are to, to, to get this war game under control. And uh, that was, that was really kind of the goal of the book is to bring 
uh, DOD uh, to DOD uh, wargaming skills. And, and this book, I think, gives as good a how-to guide as anyone I think you'll find out there. So let's, let's imagine I'm that guy. And I just rolled into this new job and I get this no notice tasker to set up a war game, um, not to give away the entire book, but Rob, <laughs> let's go to you. What, what, what's, where do I start? What are some of the basics of, uh, of setting up a war game? Yeah, I think you hit upon a, uh, a interesting uh, problem or dilemma we have in the department of defense. And that's uh, a lot of individuals walk into that job and they're told, you, you have a responsibility for the upcoming war game or analysis effort. And unfortunately, our current education process doesn't provide them the background for that, which is what was part of our desire to put the book out there to provide that fundamental. Uh, but believe it or not, just like most uh, planning and analytical work, the first step and probably the most critical step in the wargaming process is to clearly understand the sponsor or your organization's problem that they're trying to get you to uh, war game or to develop or gain insights into. Uh, so a big portion of the book is understanding the objective of the war game or the sponsor's problem and to begin to uh, deconstruct, decompose that uh, into the sub elements so that you can actually identify uh, is a war game actually even needed to address or answer this or is there other elements besides the war game? And one of the biggest advantages we've seen in executing this course all, all over the world and for many organizations, just this initial problem structuring um, exercise as part of the wargaming process that these organizations grow through, they gain uh, more benefit into beginning to clearly understand the problem they're wrestling with and trying to get insights into and getting that structured uh, correctly. What we find a lot is um, that the new individual taking on the job is told, I need you to execute a war game for this. So then they pick up something off the shelf that they've seen before and then try to get the problem to fit the structure that uh, was used in a previous attempt versus starting at the beginning and truly understanding the problem. And if you do not get that part right, then anything you try to develop to answer it, uh, probably nine times out of 10 will fall short. So I'll go to Fred for the next question. Um, there's some great historical examples in the book uh, brings out, you know, uh, Admiral Harry Yarnell in 1932, sort of previewing what would happen at Pearl Harbor uh, nine years later. You've got uh, uh, General Zinni. I remember Zinni well when I was at J.O. with his 1999 uh, Desert Crossing war game. Um, and then the, the book says that there was a, has been sort of a resurgence in war gaming since 2015. So, Fred, talk about that resurgence. What's what's causing war gaming to come back? I think it was, I think the feeling was that um, among seniors that, that that a lot of the analysis had become too technical and wasn't dealing with with, uh, with people and the problems that people have. Um, I think in terms of recent deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq, I think all our militaries have realized that it's not so much the kinetic aspects of warfare that are important. It's it's how people react, how people make their decisions, and really wargaming focuses on that as a as a particular strength of wargaming. So whereas a computer-based model of first-person shooter or something like that, most of the interactions are dominated by physics, the kinetics of rounds being fired and so on. Uh, most of our wargaming brings in players so they interact. And I think as our militaries have realized that it, it's, uh, it's the interaction between military people, military components in an alliance, for example, um, troops on the ground inter interacting with uh, villagers, uh, as we realize those human interactions are more important, I think 
uh, I think the seniors have realized that uh, that there's a, a broader scope now for wargaming to investigate those problems. And there have been some some particular breakthroughs. Uh, um, you know, USDOD uh, about five years ago, uh, uh, there was uh, an initiative right from the highest level um, to uh, to incorporate more wargaming. Um, you know, there was even an article, I think, about three years ago in The Economist uh, magazine about how wargaming had taken hold in, in D.C. and how people were playing it in the evenings to, to deal with their taking their professional problems to the gaming tables in the evening to see how they were working out. So I think that's really where it's coming from. It's, it's trying to bring in more of the human interaction than just the pure kinetics of warfare. I think the failure to foresee uh, what, what happened in Iraq with uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, right, the failure to... Uh, pay attention to uh, particularly phase four and that that desert crossing game that General Zinni ran was a phase four war yeah. game was a what happens after combat ends and you're in a um, you know you're in the role of uh, of an occupier and transitioning and trying to reestablish government right uh, so perhaps the the ten twelve years post nine eleven failures the problems that 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 sort of resulted in a, a resurgence like, hey, there's a tool here that we can use to maybe foresee and anticipate some of the problems rather than waiting waiting for them to surprise us. I think that's true. And I, I think it's really uh, useful to go back through um, the lessons from from Desert Crossing in particular. And and it's interesting that uh, a lot of that material is now available um, over the Internet. Um, I think you can probably just do a search on Desert, Cro Desert Crossing and the name uh, Zinni and it'll pop out um, and you can read declassified material on how the war game was set up, who they invited, why they invited certain people, why they didn't invite other people. And then they played the game in 1999. So, uh, so what was that, about four years before before Iraq? Um, you know, Zinni's war game, I think, showed that you couldn't uh, manage Iraq with the numbers that actually went in in 2003. Um, and there were many other aspects. It's interesting the game was set up not really to look at regime change. The, the assumption was that there was already something happening in Iraq that was causing problems and the military was going, uh, the U.S. military was going in to try and resolve those issues. Not It was not intended to be a war game to see how you would take out Saddam Hussein, but still the lessons were very uh, instructive for, for, as you say, the, the post-warfare aspect of, uh, of the operation in Iraq. Rob, you said the first thing is to figure out what end state we're looking for, you know, scope it. Then what, what comes next? As you walk through the uh, process, uh, the, the biggest piece, obviously, as we just stated, is the uh, understanding the problem and in recognizing that in many cases there are multiple, as we call it, uh, methods, models, or tools that help you address getting to uh, the problem and the decomposition. But then, frankly, you walk into that iterative process, which is the design and the development of the war game. And the, the big thing we all, uh, like to drive with that is that it is an iterative process of designing and developing um, and beginning to construct the method models or tools, or as we call it, the measurement space that allows you to create this immersive environment that you plan to put these players in. Uh, because as it's already been mentioned several times, the war game is about the players making decisions in this environment and then understanding and gaining insights from those decisions. And this design and development in an iterative process um, which, as, as we always like to joke, continues all the way up until you actually conduct the actual war game itself. Then you find out that that was really just a nice, huge play test because you always learn something from that. Uh, but what we find in today's resource-constrained environment with the biggest resource 
strengthening time is we shortchange this iterative process and we find ourselves staying in the design way too long. Uh, I have yet to see a war game designed by any individual that survived first contact with actual players. So it's that iterative process that you've got to begin walking yourself through that both uh, the design and develop to get you to ultimately uh, what you believe would be a war game to gain that insight. Jeff, I'll go back to you. A uh, question um, a, a couple of times in my career as a naval intelligence officer, I, I played on the red side of war games up at Newport, Rhode Island at the Naval War College. Uh, one was a global game in, in uh, like the year 1992, I think. We were still trying to figure out if the Cold War was really over and what the, what the Russian, you know, uh, newly independent states were going to do and different scenarios. And then the most recent one was in 2009. It was a global game that was uh, that the chief of naval operations at the time said, hey, I want to I want to take a look at um, sea control. Is uh, sea control really something that the United States Navy can take for granted? I'm curious. You know, I showed up as a game as part of the game. I showed up and was there for a day or so before gameplay started, and I was there for one day after for the the outbrief. But I'm sure that there were months of work that had to be done before that game. How much work goes into a large scale game at the strategic level or at the high operational level? Yeah, that's. Uh, it, it all depends on the scale of the game, but the games that uh, you were looking at global. Um, Probably, I would think six months to a year. Uh, we've we've done um, in the army. We do unified quest, and basically, the planning for a unified quest starts the week after the last year's game was completed. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned the fact about uh, being an intel officer and playing red because that's one of the critical things that we find in DoD that is is not done as well as it could be in many cases, and it really just shortchanges the whole game. We 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 kind of hammer home the fact that a war game isn't really a war game unless you've got an active adversary who's doing everything they can to defeat your plan. And in order to do that for us, uh, whether we're, we're on the road doing our, our courses or here at NPS where we, we actually do war games for real life DOD allied and partner sponsors, finding uh, somebody to play the Chinese or some, somebody to play the Russians uh, accurately, culturally accurately, and knows their doctrine, that's really challenging. So we turn to folks like, your, uh, your old professor in the, in the uh, naval intelligence, and uh, it's really one of the keys to getting the war game right. And one of the biggest challenges we have is getting the right red players there uh, to make sure that it, the threat is accurately represented, is challenging, and, uh, and then we get the right um, insights out of the game if all those things are correct. In the uh, book, there's a mention about how the the Army kind of iterated its counterinsurgency doctrine uh, as Operation Iraqi Freedom was not going well. General Petraeus played a big part in that. And I was curious, was that was that um, doctrine change? Was it wargaming? Was there a, a particular was there a lot of wargaming emphasis uh, on Petraeus's staff and in supporting that that um, you know resurgence in counterinsurgency uh, doctrine? Not, not to my knowledge, uh, there's, there's a great book out there that Petraeus wrote or co-authored. I, I think it's called The Insurgents. And uh, they talk about the whole process of how that doctrine was developed over, over uh, a very intense uh, six to eight month time frame, I think. But I'm not sure they even had, had time to uh, develop the doctrine. Although I will say this, 
what was going on in Iraq before that, there were different folks, different commanders at different levels, brigade commanders, battalion commanders that were trying different things. And so in some respects, it was sort of being more game for real with people trying out their ideas and what worked and what didn't work got filtered up into that process and made it into the doctrine. I mean, our, our podcast is widely listened to by folks who maybe have never been involved in a war game. And I think sometimes we run the risk of being too inside baseball. So um, talk about the conduct of a war game, because I think when you say war game, a neophyte would be like, oh, are you guys all at video screens and you're, you know, doing like a tournament where you're paying Call of Duty or something. So what what is the execution of the war game? Can you go through some of the basics of that? Sure. Uh, so what, again, number one, it's all going to depend on what the sponsor's questions are and what their issues are. So every war game in our experience is, it looks different. Uh, but you, a, a typical war game, if there is such a thing, you'd walk into, uh, first of all, you probably have a read ahead packet that told you what your role was in the game, describe the scenario, tries to get your head into the game to get ready for this event. And then you roll in if you were a key player, uh, you'd roll in and the uh, there would be an in-brief that would kind of take you through the scenario and make sure you understood where you were in the game and where we're going. And you, you'd sit down in a planning cell somewhere and probably start planning your first move. And then that would be realized somewhere, perhaps on a game board, um, maybe on a computer screen, but probably not. And, uh, and then there'd be people interaction. There'd be the players interacting with each other, as a facilitator, started asking questions about why you decided what you decided to do. Uh, that decision may be um, actually executed in some kind of a, an adjudication tool. It might be a computer simulation. It might be um, something else, a spreadsheet model that would tell you what, the, what happened after you made a decision, give you some feedback, and then you go back and plan the next move. So it would look a lot different than you described as far as being in front of a computer screen. Yeah, so just to put the who in it, let, let's let's do a scenario. Let's say it's a uh, a Western Pacific sort of fawn ops kind of thing. I don't know, Bill, would that be the Spratleys? Or what, what would be a, a good sort of scenario where uh, there's a Chinese aggressive move, there's a CTF out there. So am I the CEO of a ship? Am I, uh, you know, Seventh Fleet? Am I... Indo-PACOM, you know, what, am I all of those or, or people in the game, all of those? Um, am I the weapons officer? Am I the tactical action officer? How does, how does it go? So it, it depends on uh, exactly what the sponsor's issues are. Again, if we're at a top level game, uh, we could be talking to the seventh fleet commander and looking at what actions he or she would take in those environments. And, uh, and then looking at the opposing Chinese commander at that level and talking through that. It could be a really tactical level war game, which we'd zoom way in on um, that carrier strike group or that surface action group going in and actually looking at each individual ship commander, you know, looking at the aviation uh, air cover over it. It depends on what the issue is. So, so it could go from very strategic level, uh, operational level to a very tactical level. We've done games where we look at uh, different tax sets just to verify those. And then look at games where we look at the Seventh Fleet and look at uh, maybe even include some of the political leadership, depending on the level of the question. Yeah, yeah and if I can, uh, you know, add to that, that's, that's one of the complexities that gets into war gaming. Um, and I like the question because when individuals hear war games, you know, we're all, uh, if you will, victims of our own experiences and 
uh, in life, and we see different things. But what Jeff just described is uh, I could, at the different levels for that, come up with a different war game depending on the tactical operational theater, and I would end up with totally different questions and a totally different requirement for players. So the crux of the war game is creating this immersive environment that's appropriate to the question that's being asked. So I could see multiple war games being run across the spectrum here as we're trying to fight these friendly islands or um, in, in counter, recounter, or a uh, encounter with the, the Chinese in this case. Uh, so it would all depend, which is why this is one of the issues of you cannot just have a simple checklist. Uh, just about every game we run through is pretty unique. You, we can get some standard formats. If we think in terms of global, there's a standard structure that goes through there. And since that's operating at the strategic level, there's a lot of commonality that we can continue to bring in you know, year over year. But if you think across DOD and the, just the various levels that they're required to operate at, and then think of yourself now as a, uh, a member of the armed forces working through these organizations, depending on where you're at, the level of the game you may, may never have seen before, uh, which is why part of us is the, the critical piece of the education in terms of the process and then recognizing that wargaming is not a one-off in terms of I can be told once, here's what it is, and be done with it. It's, it's a craft notion, which is where the title in our book came from. This is something that you must do and redo and re-engage with over your career and time uh, to really start to get a handle on it. Well, it sounds also like the outcome or the answers are going to be only as good as the question that's asked. So you've got it like I've, I've just said, OK, and you rightly answered. It depends on the sponsor's intent. Uh, so something that a, um, a COCOM would ask is different than something that uh, a Desron would ask or a CAG would ask at, or a strike group commander. So if I'm wondering uh What's my uh, probability of kill if I'm going mano a mano against a Chinese combatant in a scenario? That's where you're actually committing weapons. But if I'm what would happen in a pole mill kind of construct in a region and there's probably a trade variable and other sort of political machinations that are going on you don't care so much about that tactical what what's the bda on an airstrike or whatever right uh, which strikes me as the more exciting kind of war gaming um you know obviously um but if you ask a bad question you're going to get inconclusive answers right that's kind of what it comes down to well and, and also to, to illustrate even if you ask all the right questions and have a great game structure if you don't have the right players in it, you're still not going to get uh, great results. So uh, those are there are a lot of aspects in there that you have to get right in order to have a good chance of success at wargaming. So because you guys teach this a lot and you teach it to U.S. audiences and you also teach it to NATO and and uh, allied and partner nations, right? Uh, and and um, Fred, uh, you're Canadian. We got two two Americans and a Canadian here. I'm curious, where is where in your experience and what you see, where is wargaming done well now? Who's doing it well? That's that's a great question. Um, I, the I would say this that one of the things that I was surprised and uh, delighted to find out, bringing Fred into the fold, and then working very closely as we do with the Australians. We've been to Australia now for five years, teaching courses uh, to the Australians. And the Canadians and the Australians really leverage wargaming very, very well. I think in some instances, much better than the U.S. does. So we've learned in uh, in going down there, we've learned from them as well as taught them some of what we know about wargaming. Uh, and I think uh, NATO is 
is uh, getting out of the gates from a course that Rob and I just returned from on Saturday. And I think they'll do a good job as well. It was a great audience. Um, but I would say in general, um, folks around the world, uh, a lot of our partners now as the UK does a great job with wargaming as well. They've, they've taken a little bit of a different bent on it and they've decided to go in and make sure that their young officers uh, are good war gaming, good war gamers from the beginning. And I think that's something that our DOD, as Rob talked about a little bit before, our education process in DOD really ought to start get, driving that home and getting all of our young officers to be war gamers of some sort uh, so that uh, DOD's got a, a much better chance uh, when you roll into a COCOM of having somebody that knows what they're doing, uh, creating war games, um, as opposed to uh, having to buy a book. We hope they do, of course, but uh, but we'd like them to also uh, embrace this craft of wargaming so that all of our military officers are wargamers of some sort uh, throughout their career. I certainly go along with uh, what Jeff's saying. Um, quite impressed by what the Australians have been doing. Um, I've had uh, a lot to do with both uh, Canadian wargaming and, and British wargaming. I think that's uh, in the lead. I think in the U.S., uh, I would say the, the war colleges uh, are, are doing a great job and, and have been doing a great job uh, in general. I'm more familiar with what goes on at the Army War College and the Naval War College, less familiar with, uh, with the Air Force War College. In terms of actual operational gaming, I would say on the Canadian side, uh, not so much at the, at the operational level other than uh, in terms of training war games and command post exercises, that kind of thing. Their problems are more today's problems. So trying to get, uh, you know, young uh, officers and enlisted personnel to um, to develop their own talents is uh, is critical. So so that's probably why they're they're a little less focused on analytical war games, thinking out uh, five or ten years. You know, that's that's my feeling on it. I think uh, one one small point I think uh, where in Canada and also Britain and, and Australia have benefited in terms of the war gaming techniques is we have. Uh, usually a very close relationship between our, our, our service personnel and our labs. So we can make use of engineering uh, and uh, research capabilities in the labs to make sure that we get, get our data correct and so on for our working. The U.S. Army has a capability in that area. They have a, a link to Aberdeen Proving Ground where they can pick up a lot of stuff on data. So uh, there are little pockets all around the world. Uh, and, um, you know, the only shortcoming is, I think, with operational commanders and, of course, you know, the, the last uh, decade or almost two decades now, um, you know, they've been really focused on the fight and not really had a chance to take a deep breath and, and sit back and, and think a little bit more about the future. Maybe that'll change. If I, if I could echo, I, I like Fred's comment at the end. There are uh, pockets of organizations uh, across the world who do uh, great wargaming. I think the common thread that you find with all of them is that these are organizations who have been doing and are doing a lot of wargaming. Uh, so it goes back to, again, the, the craft of it. This is something that's gained not so much through book learning or lecturing, but through practical experience and doing and doing again. And those organizations tend to have a, a, a stronger culture of wargaming and new individuals coming in are coming in isolated and on their, on their own. If, if you think in terms of probably one of the biggest shortcomings we have is throughout any doctrine, the planning process always requires wargaming, and it'll have an outline or step in terms of doing wargaming, but ver there's very little education on how to actually uh, design, develop, and conduct a wargame to address either doctrinally questions or um, operational or um, OR-type questions. 
So in many cases, an individual is forced to try to learn on his own, or they pick up whatever they've uh, been handed off by a, a predecessor in terms of conducting wargaming, and that's where we're, we tend to fall short. We could turn to an external organization. We could find several within DOD to help us run a war game. Uh, what we're trying to get to, though, is that this should be a common skill set amongst um, all uh, DOD in terms of having a, at least a basic understanding and hopefully eventually a more of a culture of wargaming uh, where they're having the opportunity to experience war games across that whole spectrum. Because uh, as we keep talking about it, it's, the, it's about the questions being asked and understanding the questions, and those will vary as you move from organization to organization or begin moving from the lowest level to the highest levels uh, within your job. Well, would, would there be any benefit to treating wargaming as we treat procurement, where there, it could be a subspecialty, if not your main MOS kind of thing? Uh, or is it satisfactory to have SMEs like you guys and just have the active duty guys provide the uh, the tactical expertise uh, or have whatever responsibilities commiserate with their billet uh, as long as they're the game is structured correctly by by the subject matter experts mm. <laughs> well I think Rob and I share this both Rob and I going through our uh, our army educational process but also uh, looking around at our, our DoD brethren and the Navy, Marine Corps, and the Air Force, uh, we think, you know, every officer should be a war gamer, not a sub subcoded specialty or anything like that. If officers aren't getting around the table and actually learning their profession um, by, uh, by doing war games, uh, we think we're, you're missing a huge professional development opportunity for those young officers to learn from the older officers. And, uh, and that's, that's really uh, key so we think that's that's a big challenge, and and uh, we would not move for I think we take anything if they want to do a subspecialty that's okay, but I think every war, war gamer every officer should be a war gamer, and as Rob was talking about, we see a lot of reliance today on uh, external organizations where they pay big bucks to do war games, and they do wonderful war games, but the war gaming we think needs to be done in DoD. There's there's many many more war games than we can pay. Uh, a Rand or a Booz Allen Hamilton or whatever to go do. And, and we really need to have that capability internally to DOD. Well, as you said that, Jeff, I was, I flashed back to my JO tour um, in VF 32 above uh, aboard the USS independence. Again, how old is, is Ward? Um, and and uh, <laughs> my skipper was uh, a big con ops guy. And, and so even as a JO or as a JG, rather a, a fresh cut JG, fresh out of the rag, um, he'd have uh, packages, brief, you know, pretty detailed con ops uh, against whatever region of the world we happen to be, uh, you know, transiting. Um, but I think it was just one shoe dropping in terms of when you talk about a wargaming construct is we'd brief him and he might sort of wargame it in terms of, okay, what if your tanker goes down or whatever else? But we never pushed play and then saw what happened in terms of the graceful degradation of forces or, you know, blue on blue or anything else. Right. There was, there, there was never an outcome where you're like, your plan sucked, you know? <laughs> so we're just doing the first part and never getting any feedback or lessons learned uh, from what would be a good war game. Right. So I think we run the risk of coming away with all the wrong, wrong strategies or, or tactics as a function of just our skippers uh, sort of notion. Right. We're, we're, we've been on, on a crusade for a while with, with uh, DOD and wargaming, 
And if you look at our joint pub 5-0 that talks about how to do wargaming for course of action analysis, as Rob was talking about, it talks about action, reaction, counteraction. And it infuriates me when I hear your senior officers go, oh, that's wonderful. It's like, that's not wonderful because the blue gets to make their move. Then the red acts, uh, counteracts, and then uh, and then we get the final move and go, yep, we took care of them. It's great. Where is the assessment of risk to your plan in that operation? So what we strongly feel is that, you know, our, our course of action wargaming needs to be much more uh, rich and then what we what the books tells us to do, I suspect that 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 action reaction counteraction uh, rubric was put in there to just make sure they do some more gaming at some level. But uh, we think if Red doesn't get a fair shot at this, you're not going to expose the risks you have to your plan. And that's what the commander really wants to know. If you're going to dust off a war game off of a COCOM shelf and actually go execute an operation in Iraq or Iran or whatever. You want to make darn sure that you know what the risks are to that operation and that somebody's thought through some contingencies for it instead of uh, going, yep, Blue got the last move and we did great. That's not telling us anything. Yeah, Ward, if I could just add, because I, I loved your uh, memory piece, which, you know, tugged at a couple of that I had. You know, when I was a, a brand new second lieutenant, I was fortunate, which is really, it was fortunate that I uh, moved into a platoon in a company with a commander who believed in wargaming and a battalion that believed in wargaming. And he brought us around the table as lieutenants to actually conduct war games before we got with our platoon and then took it live outside. Uh, so he gave us a chance as lieutenants to practice what we thought would work and not work and then go through the assessment, which is what you nailed is critical. And then once we uh, once we wargamed our COAs uh, with them, then we were actually given the opportunity to, to go out into the field and run it with our platoons in front of our men. So we had that chance to fail in the the private environment with the commander before we had opportunity to get out with the men and potentially uh, fail. Uh, so that was that, that key element that you just uh, described right there, the getting the assessment and the opportunity to fail in a safe environment was one of the critical aspects. Unfortunately, that only lasted with the culture of those two commanders. And by my second year, we've stopped doing any wargaming whatsoever. And I didn't get back into it until I switched over from infantry to operations research and got back into an organization that was designed for doing wargaming. Much of the book is dedicated to actually some some training or a scenario, if you will. So you guys have created this uh, country called Zephra, and you've got a uh, Southeast Asia Pacific Command, SAPCOM, not Indo-PACOM, but SAPCOM. Um, and you you run through some you know questions, and the the whole process is really laid out through this uh, this scenario that you have right in the book. So somebody can actually read this book and come away with um, a little bit of an understanding of okay, if I get tasked to do this, these are the these are the steps, and and it walks you through that step, right? So uh, Fred, if you would just describe for us a little bit what Zephra is, and then how that helps to um, the the reader get to a place where after coming through your book, they know, okay, at least I know a lot more about, about uh, war gaming. I've done a little bit of it here on my own through the book and I, and I know where to explore some more. Yeah. Um, Zephyr in many ways actually goes back to the Australian army. Uh, so it was uh, uh, late 1990s and the Australian army wanted uh, essentially a game box where they could uh, um try different things and they took a slice of Queensland and moved it out into the Coral Sea. So if you look closely at some of the maps in Zephyr, you'll see 
uh, resemblance to uh, to Eastern Queensland. Canadian Army picked that up, took a little bit further. We were doing concept work in uh, in Kingston, Ontario, for the Canadian Army. Um, so we took the the Zephra. Uh, slice of terrain because it uh, it had already been put into uh, digital terrain, and um, and then looked into the future. So I've captured a lot of that. We've added a lot of material to to give resemblance to many of the tactical issues you would find in Iraq or Afghanistan, or now developing in Africa. So so that scenario is there for anybody who wants to use it. If they want to pick it up, they can change the names. They can. Um, they can see a lot of elements in there that would challenge young officers to to think a little bit into the future, uh, challenge uh, uh, lab people to develop weaponry that would fit into that kind of uh, 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 scenario as well. So that uh, scenario is there in the book. Uh, we're updating it now. Right now it's set in 2020. We're, we're updating it now to probably 2028 to try and push it further into the future so people aren't thinking so much about uh, what's happening today on the ground. We've been talking today. Our guests have been Fred Cameron, Rob Burks, and Jeff Applegate. They are the authors of the Naval Institute Press latest book. It's called The Craft of Wargaming, a detailed planning guide for defense planners and analysts. Fred, Rob, and Jeff, thanks for being on the show. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope your book sells really well, and I hope it becomes required reading and uh, uh, for, for all the war colleges and uh, and lots of other organizations as well. We hope so, too. All right. <laughs> well, that wraps the latest issue or latest episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We will catch you next week. And until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.